0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrictchurch. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info@thedistrictchurch. At Amen. Good morning, Church. How are we this morning? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter two. Matthew two is where we're going to be, and. We are nearing the end of our Advent season, and so we are uh, at the last uh, Sunday here before we roll into our Eve of Eve uh, service this coming Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, um, and so we'll, we'll stream that as well, so you can either join us in person for that or join us online. Um, we, we will, for those um, families that come in, there will be... Uh, engagement with children on it and so I'm going to actually have uh, the families on Wednesday night kind of sit in these front rows um, and then have their children sit in front of them and I'm actually going to be directing most of the message towards the children and so um, so that'll be good for those um, who are here and as well as the families I'm going to for those that that join online and let me know I'll kind of uh, let you in on what the activity is going to be during that time so that you can participate uh, with your children at home as well. But again, that is uh, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, um, and it'll go for about an hour, and that'll wrap up our Advent season. And so um, we're, we're excited. I mean, we're excited what uh, the Lord is doing and what He's been showing us and revealing to us throughout Advent. And this message um, that we're looking at today, titled The Advance of a Savior, um, is really looking at... Uh, from a, a a real kind of brief portion of this passage, uh, something that we believe God is doing on a large scale, um, and so I've got a lot of work to kind of get you to understanding what it is that 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 um, God's drawing us into from this passage, and really what He's wanting us to glean from this passage. Uh, that I think is is typically just kind of read over and and kind of brushed through too quickly. Oftentimes, to be able to marvel at this beautiful truth. And so Matthew 2 is, uh, is where we're going to be, and I'm going to just jump into it. Because um, again, like I said, there's, there's a lot that's, that's kind of historical to cover from, from this passage. So Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king... "...behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, Not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So, three things for you today out of this passage. And the first one, again, is going to be very much historical, a little bit more teaching. Um, And then points two and three will be a little bit more practical uh, preaching for us today. So, if you love history, I think you're going to love the first point as we kind of dive into that. If you don't love history, uh, maybe you can doodle a little bit while we kind of get through this point. But I think you also need to listen in because it's just it, it, it's, it's a beautiful truth that we've been able to, to kind of glean from and discover, even though as I kind of talk through this, there's going to be a lot of conjectures and a lot of possibilities and a lot of maybes. Um, but I think, again, from what we see here in Scripture and what we're going to reference in the Old Testament, I think you can pull these things together as God working and moving in order for this narrative to come about And for the characters involved in this narrative to actually have a role, and why their role is within this story and narrative. And so, first question out there, how many of you have like a nativity scene in your house somewhere? All right. Maybe. Some of you do. Okay. If you're not, you're not less Christian for not having a nativity scene, but... Uh, for those that do have nativity scenes, let me ask you a question. Within your nativity scene, does it include the wise men there at the birth of Jesus? Anybody? Oh. Include the wise men? All right, all right. If it does include the wise men at the birth next to the manger scene of Jesus, it's incorrect. All right, just throwing that out there. And the only reason why I say that is because of a couple of points that are pulled out of a passage. This passage, as well as another passage recorded um, is when the wise men finally get to this area, this, this region, a couple of things. One, it's a long journey for them to get there. So they're following a star. It takes time for them to get there. We believe Jesus is around the age of two by the time that the wise men actually arrive. And the only reason why we say that is because, one, in this passage specifically, Herod asked how long did it take for them or when did the star appear And so based on their journey and when the star appeared, we know later when Herod then decrees for all the children under the age of two to be killed, he knew it was at least a two-year journey. So to cover all of his bases, to try to have this new king killed, they're expecting Jesus to be around the age of two. So... Anyways, what we do in our household is we'll have the nativity scene and then we put the wise men on the other side of the room because we know they're in journey, okay? They're, they're eventually going to get there, but neither here nor there, just trying to help you with your theology around your nativity scene on where to place these wise men. Now, are the wise men important to the narrative? Are the wise men important to the narrative? And I would say yes, they are. Why? Because God includes them in the narrative, all right? If he's going to include them in the narrative, I think it's important for us not to brush past the fact that these wise men are there. And so this is actually kind of really part two of last week when we were looking at the agents of a Savior. And not like insurance agents, I'm referring to the agents as in the people God includes in his redemptive plan and his story to bring about the birth of Jesus Christ. And so we specifically talked about last week that he kind of used the lowly of the lows, the ones that you would not expect. He used Mary and Joseph, who were common people, even though they have a beautiful lineage that goes back to King David himself. No one considered them high in honor or high in respectability because of the fact that when they came to this town of Bethlehem, no one bumped out of their places in order for Mary and Joseph to come in and take their seat or their room or their place. So they end up in a barn placing Jesus in a manger, and we'll get to that on Wednesday night. But there's nothing that's, that's high honor about them. In addition to that, when you go about hiring a herald to proclaim the news of a child to be born, you're going to go to the ones who are professional heralds. You're going to go to the ones that when they speak, people want to listen. You're not going to go to shepherds. You're not going to go to, in in this common day, they were considered outcasts. You're not going to go to someone that people ignore and don't listen to in order to then herald the news that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, has been born. And so again, we kind of saw on one side of it the lowly of the lows that God employs in order to bring about His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, entering into the wise man. We see the flip side of this. Because what's typically known about the wise men, and even really just what we draw from this passage alone, what do we know about them? Not a lot. Wise men from the East. Like from this, from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all we glean from them is that they are wise men. So it takes a lot of work to actually dive into figuring out who these guys were, why they're there on this scene, and is God telling us anything regarding these men. And so what I want to do is kind of show you a couple of things by pulling together not only this passage and the word that is used for them, wise men, which translated in Greek is, is magios, which doesn't translate into English. We have no word for that, which is why we just refer to it as magi. But what is magi? Is that a type of people? Is that a belief system? Is that a position or title? Um, Or is that just... Men full of wisdom. And so we wanted to dive in and kind of figure out what this looks like. And the only place taking that Greek term, magos, and looking at the original text in Hebrew from the Old Testament to see if there's any correlations to that, we actually pull out of Daniel and Esther the same term being used here. And I find this to be really fascinating when you start to kind of piece these things together. And so from the book of Daniel and Esther as well as some other historians like um, Herodotus, we, we find that these wise men are believed to be members of a priestly group, descendant of a tribe of people originally associated with the Medes. And so if you know anything about history, you know that there were four major world empires. And so you have the Babylonian Empire, which settled east of Israel. Then there was the Medo-Persian Empire, made up of the Medes and Persians. And then there was the Greek Empire when Alexander the Great conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. And then finally you have the Roman Empire, which is our context for the birth of Christ coming into the picture. And so we know that the Medes and the Persians are very ancient people because they even date back to the Babylonian Empire. Because we, we hear about them in the book of Daniel, which was both Babylonian and Medo-Persian Empire times. So this group, these magi, what they were in the Babylonian and Medo-Persian Empire during the time of Daniel and Esther, were they were essentially this group of people who had both prominence and position in spiritual realm, in astrology um, or astronomy, as well as being um, kind of these court gestures, if you will. They, they would go from court to court, literally interpreting not only dreams from the kings, but also laws. So they were lawmakers, as well as, as we'll see here in a minute, kingmakers. And that's very important for us to to hold on to. So I want to show you something that actually happened of why we believe that the magi, these wise men, were able to know that there was a prophecy about a child who would be born in Bethlehem and why they would ever even make that journey to begin with. And so one of the things that we see in Daniel chapter 2, verse 10, is or just picking it up in verse 10 here, this is in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel's there, the Jews are in Babylon captivity, and it says here, The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician, same word for magi, or enchanter, or Chaldean, The thing that the king asked is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so what he's kind of getting into here is they were supposed to be king or or, uh, dream interpreters, but they're not able to interpret this dream, and so the king is starting to get upset because no one can interpret this except for the gods. It goes on. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So you have the Magi who were advisors to the king. They would interpret dreams for him. But when they couldn't, the king wanted them destroyed. Wanted them just the wise men, the Magi, to be wiped off the, the face of the earth at this point. And again, this is the, the, Daniel catches wind of this and basically says to the king, Give me a chance to interpret the dream. I'll come in and help this. So he interprets the dream. The king is satisfied. And we later see in Daniel 5.11 that not only did Daniel save the Magi from becoming slaughtered, but is then placed as master of the Magi. Master of the Magi. How interesting is that? You have these ancient Gentile people who hold both spiritual and political power in all the world empires, and now their leader is a Jew named Daniel. And this gives Daniel the opportunity, we believe, to dispense to them all of the information that Daniel has possession to. All of his um, uh, prophecies, all of his scriptures and holy texts, he now has the access to be able to include this to these wise men, to these magi. Which again, most theologians um, would believe that through that is how information was passed down from wise men and magi through their generations to be able to come to someone 600 years later and say, hey, you need to remember that there's going to be a child born. Um, And and, and at this point, again, 600 years, there's probably some some, uh, lost in translation. All they knew was to the West, somewhere in Israel, there's going to be a child born that's going to be king over the people. Because if they, if they knew Micah 5.2, they would have just went straight to Bethlehem. But as we see, they go to Jerusalem. God is setting this whole situation up. So picture the scene here. We have these ancient Gentiles, scientific, religious, politically powerful wise men, considered kingmakers, whom God positioned. And the reason why I say they're kingmakers is when you trace history... Um, They were literally considered Persian king makers. So you did not become king in Persia unless you were signed off on by the magi, by the wise men. And so that's important because, again, whenever they showed up on the scene, whoever the current king is would get a little nervous. Are you here to name someone else king? Are you here to remove me? Are you coming to change laws? Like, again, not only were they advisors, but lawmakers and kingmakers. They were very important. And again, they transcend over each of the four kingdoms that we've seen up to this point. And so very, very important and prominent people. And so when they show up in first century, this is why Herod is troubled. And not only that, but this is also why Jerusalem is troubled with him, because up to this point, this, the Medo-Persian Empire that is to the east is now considered the Parthian Empire, and they've been in wars constantly with those from the Western Empires, specifically the Roman Empire. And so they fought in 50 B.C., they fought in 40 B.C., leading up to the birth of Christ, they're in great tension. And so when you have anybody, specifically wise men, coming from the east, not only is Herod worried about his kingship, but he's also worried about his kingdom. And he's also worried about the empire. Are we about to enter into war? And so therefore, Jerusalem is also going to be troubled in this moment, whether or not this happens. And so these magi kingmakers from the east head to Israel. And you can see why in Matthew 2.3. It says that King Herod, again, troubled by them showing up on the scene. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." So the first point to draw from these wise men, these magi, is again, if God has gone from employing the lowly of the lowly, we are now seeing him go the other side of the coin to employing those who hold all possession or or all prominence, all power, um, especially in spiritual realm, especially in science. When they show up on the scene, people listen, all right? People would be getting bumped from their houses in order to find place for these wise men and these magi to come in. And the beautiful thing that I see here is that, again, these... And I'm going to just continue driving this point home because I think it's important for us to to know this. The more we um, westernize Christmas, and what I mean by that is make it white, the more we... Miss out and lose the anchor of the actual Christmas narrative because there's nothing white about this. Now I'm not saying that we like we should feel bad about the fact that we're American and that there is a majority that is white and that there is um, that 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 we are who God created us to be. But the reality is is that we are in a small blip of God's enormous redemptive human history that yes, we are playing a part now, but we are going to be surprised if we only think that it is Anglo. We're going to be surprised when we get to heaven and we're not singing in English. I don't know what we're going to be singing in, but I would dare say it's probably not going to be English. And that when we look at this story, Mary and Joseph, not white. Jesus, not white. These wise men, absolutely. It refers to them as from the Orient. Not white. And so it's important for us to know that what God is now revealing in this narrative is last week, He's showing up to what we'll just call the super Jews. All right? Like when when Joseph says, I'm from the lineage of David. Like that's super Jew. But now what we're also seeing is Really, the fulfillment of Acts 1 8 in the narrative of the story here. We're seeing he's come to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that God is drawing in at the birth of Christ really a foreshadowing of the fulfillment of what this child is going to accomplish in his life and his work and his death and his resurrection. That from those whom the promise first came to and to those whom the promise is going to end with, Jews and Gentiles are both coming in, as well as those who are of lowly um, position and stature, as well as those who are high. The gospel is coming to them and God is drawing them near. So that's really the first point to take. And that was really kind of closing up the second part of last week with these magi. And so the second thing that I want you to see here is, and I think this is, again, where we kind of get more into the practical preaching side of this, is you can know the Bible and miss Jesus. You can know the Bible and miss Jesus. Let me give you just kind of a current example to prove this point. With all the avenues of social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, I don't know what else is out there <laughs> these days, um, But let me ask you a question. How many of you, before meeting someone, met them through social media and stalked them? Anybody? Come on. I'm not the only one. All right. Like it's like I think even in this day and age, like you can skip the first date because you already know all of those like small talk facts about a person before you even meet them. You know where they're from, where they live, what their career is how many cats they have, Like whatever. Like You know those things before you even meet someone because you can fact check these things online. Guess what? This is what was happening in first century when Herod goes to those who should have moved to head to the birth of Jesus Christ. He comes to the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, those who are considered the spiritual elite. He comes to them and asks them, Hey, there's some wise men here. There's some guys who have showed up. They're kingmakers. Like um, They're here to look for a new king who is to be born. I need to know about this, okay? So the point here is not to call out Herod. He doesn't know anything. He's calling on those who do know. And they come to him and they tell them, oh yeah, uh, there's a prophecy, Micah 5.2, over 500 years ago, that was declared that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. So send the wise men to Bethlehem. Why are they not gathering up their things and heading to Bethlehem themselves? They know the facts, but it's not moved them yet in their heart to do anything about it. Why didn't the scribes and priests hurry over to see this Savior whom they're waiting for, longing for? They know the promises. They know what to expect. And not only that, but they know that He is coming and why He is coming. He's to be their Savior. And from what we gather, they didn't move at all. And what happened to them? What happened to them? I think the same warning that's given to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 is the same warning that should have been given to these guys. Like, if there's false doctrine in the church, man, you snuff it out. If there's false teachers that come into the church, you get rid of them. Like, the church in Ephesus was one of the most highly regarded, doctrinally rich churches that has ever existed. And yet Jesus tells them in Revelation 2, this is what I have against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And if not, I will come to you and I will remove my lampstand from its place unless you repent. What that means is Jesus is saying, you are great about all the facts that are about me, but you have forgotten me. And if you don't get back to worshiping me, then I'm going to come remove my transforming presence from your church and I'm going to go to the next one. Because I do have a people that I am calling and drawing to myself through the proclamation of the gospel. And if you're not going to do it, then I'm going to go to the next church because there is a people in the city and I'm coming for them through the proclamation of the gospel. Get back to that. And this is what these guys are missing out on. And so that's one of the points that I just want to draw from this passage is let's not be like the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees in this passage who know the facts about Jesus, who have a ton of head knowledge, but it never moves to our heart to getting our actions to change. Like that's absolutely necessary. If you don't hear anything else from this passage, just know that God is going to execute the ends of the earth whatever way He wants, if that's even moving a star and using astrology or astronomy for that. He's going to make that happen. But what He's also going to do is He's going to get His Word out. And if you stop it at your head, then He'll move on to the next person. Man, I don't want that to happen for us. And the only reason why I say that is because I know, I know, we've structured the church this way. I know that we are a church that values good, rich, deep theology. We value it. But the only reason why we value it is because we value what the theology is about. And not only what it is about, but who it is about. Like, I want to know Jesus in a deeper and more intimate way. But what I don't want to do with my relationship with Jesus is just try to be in relationship with Him while trying to just fact check all the time what it looks like to be in relationship with Him. Like, I don't want to get more concerned about and this is funny because this is so anti what you usually hear me say. <laughs> so if you're feeling weird that Dwayne's going off the rails now, it's okay. This is one out of 52, all right? But, but what I am saying is I'm trying to show the fact that the heart is valuable and the heart is worth talking about. And getting the head knowledge down to our heart to where it moves us is important. And so if you're only building up the knowledge in your head and your heart is never moving, that's an issue. It's an issue. It's an issue that we need to work on. It would, it would be similar to like if, if when I started dating Kelsey that she gave me a book about all of the information that I should know about her and then I go on a date with Kelsey and I'm opening the book while Kelsey is in front of me and I'm reading a chapter on how to date Kelsey on a date and then she's telling me I'm in front of you. Just talk to me. And I'm responding to her saying, wait, I'm reading the chapter right now on what I need to know in order to talk to you. Like, do you get how what I'm trying to say here is like there's abiding in relationship that gets down to the enjoying one another in presence that, yes, has aspects of the truth involved in it. Absolutely, because then you know how to rightly talk to God and abide in Christ and work with the Holy Spirit. You know how to do it rightly when we have the book in front of us. But don't be so, so just focused only on the book that we don't ever actually get away and just sit and receive the truth and be stirred up in our affections of the truth that then move us to action, that draw us to the Lord, that draws us to others to consider the interest of them, to be able to get into their lives in the thick of their lives, to be able to figure out how we can love them and pursue them and encourage them and and gospel them and do those things. If we're only ever building up our minds and never allowing it to get down into our hearts, then we're just spectator Christianity and we love the facts. We're Facebook Christianity and that's it. And so I want, it to, to, I, I want us to be warned here from, from these guys who don't move even though they know all the truths. They know all the facts. Honestly, they don't care that this child is actually being born in Bethlehem. And the last thing I want to say, that's the second thing, the last one, and we'll wrap up with this, the only way we can come to Jesus, the only way we can know him is by faith alone. Seems simple. We know that. You've heard me say that. But just like the second point, we know that. The first one, we might not have known a lot of those facts, but conjecture a little bit. But this one seems like the easiest one, but in some ways might be the hardest one for us. And I want to pull the Magi back into this one. The only way we can know him is by faith alone. Again, we have these Magi, these wise men, who could be from Persia or Babylon. We're not sure of the deepest roots. But they're from the east. And they travel west. Has anyone in here ever traveled west before? Yeah. I know like four or five years ago, I went down to, uh, went down, went over um, to LA for uh, one of my best friends that was getting married. And like, I have yet, and this is going to reveal my lack of travel, but I have yet to found a more beautiful place than Southern California. Just, it's just true. Like, it's, I wasn't in the like smog of LA. Like, we were in Orange County, south of LA. Like, it was, gorgeous, and again, I'm from, I I love Tennessee, love the rolling hills of Tennessee, love the barns, like that's, that's Shekinah glory, like it's, it's beautiful, and then we lived a couple of years in Miami as well, I mean, it's, if you love summer, just move to Miami, it's hot and hotter all year long, like it's, we were there for two years, and we enjoyed summer for two years, we were 20, 30 minutes from the beach, what beach do you want to go to? Go to South Beach, go to Key Largo, go to Key West. Like You, you can just go to the beach anytime you wanted to. But nothing compares to what I saw in Southern California. Beautiful. But here's the reality. If I want to go west again, it's going to take a few hundred dollars and a four-hour plane trip to get there. Not a lot of faith. Not a lot of faith. For these magi, these wise men to head west... Is going to be at least an eighteen-month to two-year journey, and not only that. Can you imagine the amount of resources that they're going to have to take? And here's another thing, too, just to kind of draw out the the uh, uh, incorrectness of the nativity. We don't know if there's three. No one knows if there's three. What we do know is there's at least two because Magi, wise men, is a plural form of the verb or of the word. It's plural. So there's at least two. And some theologians and and historians believe that they would actually travel um, in, in as upwards of 200 people just because of what they need to attend to them. So let's just say two to 200 is kind of the range that we're dealing with here. Either way, it takes a ton of resources to get there. And what we also know is that in first century... What you're dealing with when you travel from city to city or village to village, everything is similar to international waters. Everything. What goes, goes in between city to city, village to village. So you're talking not only are we uh, burning time, but we're burning resources, but we're also sacrificing potentially our lives in order to get to... This one little promise that they're holding on to. This one little prophecy that, again, over a span of 600 years from Daniel and Esther, that, 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 again, we believe through that kind of lineage that they had access to this knowledge that there would be a Messiah born for the people of Israel. Like, that's crazy to me. That's crazy to me. But what I believe, and again, conjecture, but I'm putting it in there. What I believe that to be is God drawing them to himself and granting them the faith necessary for them to have confidence and assurance that this trip we're about to go on is absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it. Because outside of that, outside of of faith and the promise, I don't know any other reason for why these men would go and make this journey. And so faith absolutely has to be involved in this, and I think honestly, like, even when you get down to Jesus, like when they show up on the scene, what does it say that they do when they get there? They bow down, fall on their faces and worship. Of this little toddler at this point. Now I've seen some cute kids. You know I've got a few of them at home. I don't always think they're cute. And at the same time. They're not necessarily something that I'm going to fall down on my face and worship. I don't care if Jesus is Gerber baby. Like, and honestly what we know from Isaiah. Is that he's not. He's what we would say has the face. That only a mother could love. Right. Like there is nothing upon his physical appearance that would make you long for him. That would be desirable, as the scriptures say. He's an ugly baby. All right. That's the best way to put it. So you can't give him that another. Some some other skeptics say, well, it was the uh, the gifts that sort of bought their ability to then worship him to try to, to, if He is going to be a Savior, well then let's purchase salvation by bringing these gifts and then worship Him. No, that's just this penance. And we know that that's that's not true. That doesn't work. Generosity is not what brought them to their worship, but rather Christ Himself and the faith necessary to bring them to this place that Christ is King and that He is Messiah and that He is Savior, faith brought them to their knees. And I believe faith is what also brought them to their generosity, to the fact that they did give gold and myrrh and frankincense. And I think the same thing is happening for us today. For again, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Just like you have the First John passage where it talks about we love because God first loved us. We give because God first gave to us. Like Jesus Christ is the gift of the season. Jesus Christ is the perfect gift that is provided to us which then produces out of us what we're seeing in these wise men is that they give, that they become generous, that they've sacrificed their lives to come to see this Christ who actually is the greatest gift for them and the Savior of them when it comes to Jews and Gentiles. And that for us, we don't want to miss this. And the only way that we don't miss it is by... Understanding that the facts need to get to the heart so that we're actually on the scene and we're not back in Jerusalem just stating facts about 700-year-old prophecies. That the facts get to the heart and that when they get to the heart, the faith that God grants to us also then moves us and produces worship out of us, which then leads to us not being worried about ourselves anymore, but worried about everyone else to the point to where we are then generous with our lives in whatever that looks like. How do you know to be generous? You're connected to those needs that are around you. Like you're connected to the people around you and you're able to show up and provide them. It's actually kind of interesting, and and, and I say this all the time, and every time I say it, I cringe. But how many times do we ask the question, Hey, anything you need, let me know. How can I help you? And this is is convicting. This is convicting for myself. It hurts a little bit when I'm going to say this. If we were deep enough in their lives, we wouldn't have to ask the question. Right? If we were deep enough in one another's lives, we wouldn't have to ask, how can I serve you right now? How can I help you? How can I provide? How can I give? so I just want us to be moved by this story of these magi, these wise men who sacrifice a lot because I believe the faith that God granted to them to land on this one promise where they journey almost two years to come find Jesus. And God drawing them the whole time using his creation, a star to get them to the place that they need to get to so that when they show up on the scene, Man, they are so overwhelmed that they fall on their face worshiping a a toddler. That's amazing to me. And I want that for my heart. I want that for your heart in this season. That as it draws us into this Wednesday night, Eve of Eve, and as we shine the light on the manger scene, I pray for us that it's not another season of Christmas where we kind of just walk over it or move on from it real quick because we just know the narrative so well. We know the story so well. I pray we have the same faith and the same movement as these magi to come and just fall on our faces at the birth of this child. Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at at infothedistrict.church.